All right, ladies and gentlemen, with this episode 14 of the podcast, we got a great guest today. We're doing an Ask a Coach uh, segment. So uh, we got Cliff Pittman in the house. He actually is me and Jeff's coach, and he coaches numerous athletes uh, around the country. So uh, good to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be here, man. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so let's just uh, give the viewers just kind of a background of who you are and how you got into Ulster coaching. Yeah, absolutely. So um, <clears throat> I started running at a really early age, uh, competitively, I guess, um, like fifth grade, I got into a track and cross country program where I grew up in Tulsa and uh, Jinx America is the name of the club. And so just kind of got um, indoctrinated into the, the track and field lifestyle and cross country at a really early age. And um, by the time I was a junior, I uh, was traveling all across the United States, competing on a national level and just had an absolute love for it. Um, I had a, a injury in track, uh, tore my hamstring my senior year. And so, um, at that point in time, it was either continue to try to rehab that and pursue a, a collegiate, uh, track opportunity, um, or enlist in the military. And it was right after nine 11. And so I decided to opt for the military route and went into the army, spent 10 years in the army, um, got away from running after a few years in the military. And, uh, you know, training was very, uh, I guess for lack of better terms, uh, functional for, you know, what I was doing as in a combat arms position. And so I never left fitness behind though. Like I still loved it. It's just that I was lifting really heavy. Um, you know, coming out of high school, I was like 125 pounds. I'm a small dude. Yeah. Um, while I was in the army, I got to like 188 pounds, 190 okay. pounds, just okay. throwing around, throwing around heavy weight. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got really, really slow. <laughs> okay. And, um, so I, I spent 10 years in the army and got out in 2012 and met a girl at the time. That's now my wife. And, uh, she, um, kind of like brought me back into the endurance community and it was triathlon. That was the vehicle. And she, we met at a CrossFit gym and she's like, Hey, you could, um, you do really well at triathlon because you know, you can run really well after, after lifting. And she's like, you should, you should try it out. I was like, well, I can't swim. And she said, well, I'll coach you. So she coached me and I did a half Ironman and realized real quickly that, um, I'm not a very good swimmer. <laughs> and I'm probably less than average on the bike, but I str I'm a strong runner. And so I refound my love for running and just said, okay, I'm just going to, just going to run now. Um, so that was 2000, like 15, 2016, uh, did my first marathon in 2016. And then from there, uh, we had a couple kids and training kind of just took a back seat for several years, but I continued to run. And then it was 2019 where I did my first 50 K. And just absolutely fell in love. Um, that was kind of my introduction to trail and, and ultra. And um, as far as the coaching goes, I, when I was in the military as an army fitness trainer, so I've always been plugged into uh, training and, and coaching. And um, I was coaching a few road runners on the side. And then when I got into ultra runner, I started picking up some trail athletes. And then uh, a few years ago, I got linked up with uh, now my mentor and coach, Jason Coop. And so he's kind of really helped me accelerate growing my coaching business and, uh, on the, on the coaching front. So yeah, I left, um, 
I uh, left a corporate job several years ago, and now I get to do this full time. I work with about 30 athletes, and gotcha. it's, it's just living the dream. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know you were in the military for that long. Well, thanks for your yeah. service. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Absolutely. All right. So I was thinking, um, I actually got this idea from Ridge Runners, another podcast out, out there. So if you haven't checked them out, go give them a uh, Go check them out. So we're just going to get right into some questions. Um, we're just gonna, I just wrote some things that um, I thought some people maybe would want to know. So I'm just going to start off big here. What's the what's the best training advice you've ever got? Yeah, man. So uh, that would be appropriately applying the specificity principle. And so the specificity principle is just that if we're going to train for an event, we need to train in a way that uh, specifically meets the demands of that event. So like on a broad scope, um, if you're going to train for a marathon plus, then you really need to train long and slow, right? Like we need to develop our aerobic engines. That's on like a broad painting that with a very broad brush. More specifically, if we're training for, um, you know, a, a hundred miler on technical single track, um, that has significant elevation gain and loss, then we need to prepare for those specific demands in the training process. And my first 50 K, like I didn't apply this at all. Like I didn't know, I just approached a 50 K like it was a road marathon and it was a pretty crazy learning experience because the 50 K took about twice as long as I was, I was a three hour marathoner at the time. Uh, and then my first 50 K was like six hours and some change because it was a lot different than what I anticipated. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, just, just meeting the specific demands of what we're going to, what we're going to, um, what's going to be required of us and in, in, in meeting that in training. Right. And I know you talked to me a little bit about this. You say usually rock a uh, general too specific. So you're, uh, can you explain mm -hmm. that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we look at, and this is kind of, I think that specifically within ultra running, we kind of fall into this um, siloed way of thinking of, <clears throat> we just need to train long and slow all the time because that is correctly what is going to be required of us on race day. That's very specific way of training. But I think that we can prepare better if we don't get stuck into that one way of training, you know, all year long. Right. And we're leaving a lot of performance and a lot of fitness on the table when we don't address other aspects of our cardiovascular engine. And so whenever we look at an event, um, you know, you've got a, an FKT coming up that's you know, going to be several days, multi-day event. When we look at an event like that, <clears throat> we want to kind of reverse engineer it. And we say, okay, well, what's the most specific thing? Well, specific, we're going to need to have uh, endurance. Um, we're going to need to be able to run long. We're going to need to be able to perfect our nutrition and hydration strategies and have gear selection uh, ironed out and um, train on surfaces and elevation profiles that match you know, the event. So that's, those are the specifics that we need to be really, really good at. So those are the things that we address, um, last in the training, probably somewhere between eight to 12 weeks out. 
yours was a little bit different because we started working together kind of at a unique time. Right. And I kind of went about things a little bit differently with you than yeah. a traditional way. But whenever we have, say, five to six months to train for something, um, then we, we start, um, we reverse engineer it, address the most specific things last. And then we kind of, um, we, we look at the other end of the spectrum, which is furthest out and say, all right, what's, what's like the least specific thing. And we need to make sure that we don't think of least specific as unimportant because it's still important. It's just the least specific or the least important. And that'd be higher intensity training. And you went through that VO2 max training block, and that would be the least specific thing. So we're never going to approach 90% of our, our VO2 max, our maximum rate of oxygen consumption, um, in an ultra event. But if we train it really far out from the event, then what we're essentially doing is raising our, our ceiling so that, you know, we, we raise that ceiling. We have all this capacity underneath to build other aspects of our physiology, our, our lactate threshold, which is very important for ultra runners and, and ultimately our, our endurance, our stamina. So, um, it's really kind of lifting up that, that ceiling. And then we kind of fill in the middle. Um, and usually for a distance like that, it's, it's the lactate threshold where we can kind of get a really big bang for our buck of where intensity is, is moderate and volume is moderate. And, um, you know, if we look at things as a, from a 30,000 foot view, we start six months out, our intensity is super high. Our volume is pretty low. And then as we get closer, that meets in the middle. And then as we get even closer, the volume is the highest and the intensity is the lowest. Gotcha. Hopefully yeah. I explained that clearly. Yeah, yeah. That is a great answer. Thanks for that one. All right. The second one I got here is, um, so recovery, what, what would you say the, obviously there's a lot that goes into recovery, but if you had to pick one, like, like sleep, nutrition, hydration, like what's the, well, you can talk about all of them if you want a little bit, but what would sure. you say the one is like, man, that one is like, maybe that one's a little bit more important than the other. Yeah, this is, this is a really easy one to answer actually. And it's sleep. Okay. Okay. And, and we've got so much research and so much literature out there that shows um, how much we can move the needle in recovery with adequate sleep. Um, you know, when we, when we think about recovery in general, it's kind of fascinating. Like in, you know, prior to this day and age where we have heavy marketing strategies selling us products and services mm -hmm. to accelerate our recovery, recovery used to be... Um, a noun. It was like a state of being like I'm recovering by I'm either sleeping or I'm laying on the couch with my feet up, reading a book, watching TV or something, right. you know, that's, that's recovery. And now it's become more of an, an, uh, a verb. It's something that we're actively doing. Like I'm recovering by, um, with these, uh, compression boots, um, which, you know, I think there's value in that. And I can get into that in a little bit. Um, but first, we have to really focus on the thing that gives our biggest return on investment, and that's maximizing our sleep. Um, secondly, second most important thing would be nutrition and just making sure that we're not in a major caloric deficit, because if we're not meeting the demands with our, our nutrients um, and, and our calories, 
then our body's not going to be able to go through the proper processes of rebuilding broken down muscle tissue. Um, and then also it can wreak havoc on hormonally and things like that. Um, and then third would be the interventions. The third thing you can do is, is to, you know, the, the compression boots, the, the compression socks, the, uh, massage, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of conflicting research out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of research shows that there's really marginal to, to no benefits whatsoever. And that maybe the main benefit is placebo, but hey, who cares? Like <laughs> if you enjoy getting a massage and you feel better afterwards, then I encourage people to go do those things. Right. Um, because how we feel is pretty important. And another thing to consider is that a lot of times science just hasn't quite caught up yet with some of the benefits out there. And so if it works for you and it's not hurting you, continue doing it. Right. What's a, what's a good number for sleep that you would, that people should strive for? You think? I think it's seven plus okay. seven plus hours. Um, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the, the research shows seven and a half is, is really like that sweet spot, seven and a half to eight hours. Um, not always practical, right? Um, a lot of people have, uh, you know, you're, you're in college, you've got studies to do and, and you train like a pro. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, um, I actually do get quite a bit of sleep. My first class is until 10. Good. I did that on purpose. Perfect. So, um, <laughs> Excellent. I was struggling last semester. I made a, made a mistake. Did, did 8am. I missed a lot of those ones. I was, oh man. Yeah. We got to look at sleep as, as an aspect of training. Like it's, yeah. it's just as important as, as our interval sessions, it's just as important as our, um, endurance runs. Like it's, it's a critical component of training. Um, but then, you know, there, there are people that have, you know, crazy busy jobs and I've got four kids myself. And and fortunately I run a business from home and kind of set my own hours, but I do have to get up at a certain time and take kids to school and, and then get in everything else. Um, so yeah, it's not always practical and, I, I think that we just, we got to do the best with what we got. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great answer. The next, the next one I got for you relates to um, kind of like peak mile. So like if someone's training for a 50 K, I know, I know you, we kind of train more on time with mm-hmm. uh, hours. Like when you give me a workout, you'll say go out for an hour. You won't say go for seven miles. But um, like, what would you say maybe uh, miles or hours? Like if someone's training for a 50K, what, what would you say they're going to peak at for uh, miles for a week versus a 50 miler and a 100 miler? Yeah, great question. Um, one of the f- favorite responses we have as coaches is it depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so um, this question or this answer has a, a ton of variability to it because, um, you know, I have, I have several guiding principles that kind of, uh, that, that guide me in my coaching process and my philosophy. And one of those guiding principles is individuality. Mm-hmm. And that is we have to look at each individual and account for training history. Um, you know, how many years you've been running and what's, what's been your previous volume? Um, fitness, you know, everybody has different capacities to handle, you know, different loads, training loads. And then also, um, you know, what you reference, like demands of the event. So 50 K versus a hundred miles is going to be, you know, or 200 miles is going to be significantly different. 
Um, so we have to, as a coach, I have to look at all those different things and look at the individual. And so for one person that's time crunched, who um, hasn't maximized their sleep yet, who works a crazy amount of hours and um, maybe doesn't have a lot of training history, they've been running for maybe a year, maybe their peak volume is only five or six hours for a 50K mm-hmm. and maybe peak hours are nine hours for a hundred miler. Gotcha. But, but that's really on the, like the, the bare minimum of like, mm-hmm. you got to be able to get that in mm-hmm. if you want to be able to have a, a decent experience in the events and, and increase your chances of, of, of finishing. Yeah. Now there's a whole other end of that spectrum, right? Um, right? There's, there's athletes out there, elite athletes that are training 20 plus hours a week. Right. You know, I've had a few uh, weeks where I've trained, 19 to 21 hours. Yeah. Um, and, and there's some that handle a lot more than that. So <clears throat> it really just depends on the individual. Um, you know, and then we, you mentioned like the miles versus, versus hours. Right. And that, that, that's really, I think that's an important thing to kind of discuss if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it for sure. Cool. Um, I really like the, the time approach. Right. And the reason being is because it is kind of a, an equalizer. Um, you know, okay. So you, you live in Iowa and you have a lot of flat terrain there. And wow. so if I say, yep, I say go out and do a, a 10 mile run, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the roads, you know, at an endurance pace and you're, you're probably going to, you know, do that in what maybe, uh, 8, 15, 8, 7, 45 pace, somewhere around there. Yeah. So I'm really bad at math. It puts you somewhere around hour 20, hour, hour 20. Thanks. Like yeah. yeah. So you're still in college. Um, <laughs> um, no, all right. So, so let's say 90 minutes uh-huh. for you to do, for you to do that, that 10 mile run. Um, now you're on vacation. You were just in Southern California, not too long ago. Right. And yes. I say, all right, go out and get a, a 10 miler. You know, you get out into, into the mountains. Right. And all of a sudden that 90 minute run turns into a two and a half hour run to account for the terrain right. yeah. and for the vertical change in sure. a two and a half hour run. Even if it's the same mileage, it's a significantly different amount of stress than a 90 minute run. Right. For sure. And so, um, as a coach, I could, you know, be like, okay, you know, if you're running on this surface and I want you to run this amount of miles, but it's a whole lot easier when we look at things week over week over week for us to compare and contrast your progression whenever we're looking at just, just volume, um, in terms of time instead of mileage. And the other reason is because adaptations that the way that we adapt to training stresses, Mm -hmm. it takes place based on time at intensity and not mileage at intensity. And so whenever we go into like interval sessions and I'm having you do, you know, a, a four by 10 minutes, at lactate threshold, I know you're getting 40 minutes of work at lactate threshold. It's a lot easier math for me than telling you to do four, <laughs> four by mile and a half. Right. At. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So it's, yeah. So just simplicity sake and kind of an equalizer, um, is, is a good reason for people to train by time. And it's a, it's a hard transition for people to make if they have a long history and background in, in like road marathon or, right. or track, because in those, in that world, we always operate a mileage. Right. For sure. And I know I saw this, uh, this, this miles and, um, 
everyone trains different um, had me thinking about a question. I think you maybe put on your Instagram. Um, it was should maybe you didn't, but this is what, at least I thought this is what it said. It should um, normal athletes train like elite athletes. Mm. Yeah. Did you put that one on there. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did. Maybe go into that one. Yeah, you bet. So <clears throat> I think that um, there's going to be some nuances here in this in this question, in this response. There's there's definitely going to be differences, right? So one of the obvious differences is duration, volume. Um, elite athletes tra- are training at a training load that is, well, the reason why they're so good is because they can absorb and handle and adapt to so much training stress. Right. And then us mere mortals, I don't want to say us because – you've got a, a huge ceiling ahead, uh, ahead of you, which is awesome. <laughs> but, uh, so let's, this, uh, for the, for the average runner, um, that uh, they can't handle that much, that much training load without a lot of injury, right. um, or risking overtraining syndrome and such. So that's a, that's a glaring difference. There is just, is just the amount of volume that, that an elite and a non-elite can handle. However, everything else, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, sound training principles that mm-hmm. the elites, um, have figured out or are utilizing, um, specifically in more well-established sports. If you think about, um, you know, um, skiing and cycling and triathlon, where there's a lot more stronger foundation of science and training principles and, and ultra running is such a new sport, right? We're just trying to figure this out. And we've really haven't even embraced the sciences until maybe last decade or so, um, where previously it was a lot of, um, well, this worked for me, so it'll work for you. And okay. You know, I read this on a blog, so I'll try this. And so a lot more art, right. Just trying to figure it out. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the principles are the, um, you know, overload and overload and recovery, like whether you're elite or, or not, like you should be um, overloading a system and then having adequate time to recover from that. A, a simpler way to look at that is stress and rest, right. apply stress and then rest from it. And when you rest, you come back stronger. Um, you, know, you take your hard days hard and your easy days easy. Most of your training should be should be easy, but, um, you know, we think about long runs. Those are, those are easy intensity, but they're still considered a hard stress. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, and then progression, like our training should get harder over time, mm-hmm. whether that's volume or intensity. Uh, we, we have to apply more training stimulus and stressors over time so that we can continue to adapt. Bigger engines require bigger stresses yeah. to, to adapt to. So I think that in terms of those basic foundational principles, um, it's no different between the elite and, and, and the average runner that we can train just like the elites, but scaled to our individuality, what our individual bodies can adapt to. Gotcha. Absolutely. And I know you were just talking about most of the training should be easy and then some should be hard. I know there's kind of a, at least rule that some, some coaches go by. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but the 80, 20, like mm-hmm. 80% easy, 20% um, hard intensity. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. So the, the Pareto principle is what that's, that's referred to and, and applies to, <clears throat> you know, I think just about everything in life, right? Like everything beyond 
running, um, we can kind of look at, we can apply that Pareto principle of 80-20 to a lot of different things, and it will make sense. Um, I I think that a good training program will turn out to be somewhere around 80-20, maybe even Uh 90-10, but that's not how that's not how I approach it. Um, I don't look at it and say, okay, I'm going to assign 20% of your training hard and 80% of it easy. I look at, okay, what phase of training are we in? Uh Um, and how much of a dose do you need? How much time at intensity do you need to have the adaptation that we're looking for? Yeah. And then I fill in the rest with recovery and, and endurance And that always turns out to be somewhere between 80, 20 and 90, 10. Gotcha. So uh, if you looked at the whole picture at the end of like a six month thing, it might be around 80, 20, but one week might have like 30. And then the next week might have somewhere 10 for hard. Is that something like that? Yeah. I think it still turns out to be week to week. I think that, you know, um, you know, each, each week is going to be somewhere around 80, 20, okay. um, you know, week yeah. to week that way. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we kind of look at it in a polarized way. Um, you know, you might have three or four hard days per right. week. Uh-huh. Um, but if we break it down by time, oh, then it's yeah. more of the like, okay, 80% okay. is super yeah. easy because we're looking at, okay, if you trained, 10 hours this mm-hmm. week, yeah, yeah. then only, only two hours of that would be, you know, at harder intensities. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. For sure. Cumulative throughout the week. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I know there's a lot of, um, ultra runners or runners out there that, um, like to cycle or, mm-hmm. or like to swim. Do you think that if you're trying to be a better runner that cycling or swimming or um weights or um are those things going to make you a better runner or is the best way to become a better runner is just to run yeah it's a great question and and um man semantics here uh (laughs) no all those other activities are not going to make you a better runner okay um they're going to make you a better athlete right (laughs) um you're more well-rounded athlete Mm -hmm. um, a stronger athlete uh, and sometimes that can translate into improved running. You know, there's, there's cases obviously within strength training, if you can, especially for road running, this okay. is very road running specific, yeah. um, you know, where you can improve running economy, which is obviously going to make you a better runner. Um, if you, if you approach your strength properly, but if you want to become a better runner, um, the best thing you can do is run. And that comes right back to that training principle of specificity. Uh-huh. And that's like the broadest in the broadest sense possible. Like if you want to become a stronger runner, they need to maximize time spent running. Now, sure. There's going to be, exi- you know, like uh, one-offs um, if you're injury prone, mm-hmm. um, if you're older, if you have a huge um, training history of 20 years of running, then you can get by and look at Anton Kropiska. Like the dude has so many years of, of training of running. And now he spends a majority of his time cycling and then he can still come out, you know, to Leadville recently. And I think he got third. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it works. 
um, for, for certain individuals like that. Um, you know, people who are injury prone, um, I may have them get on the bike some, um, for cross training. And then, um, you know, there's probably other circumstances too, that I'm not, that I'm not thinking of right off the top of my head. So there's always going to be one-offs, but if you're not injury prone and you haven't reached your like potential in running, the right. best thing you can do, the biggest return on investment is to run more. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense for sure. Another one I was thinking, so this just kind of ties into um, kind of like raw speed and ultra running. So one thing I've noticed is the, the runners that like win Western States or the biggest races, it seems like they're um, they have Olympic trial qualifying speed on the road. Like if you look at Wamsley, like he's like a, maybe, I don't even know, maybe like 215, 210, somewhere around there for the marathon. Mm-hmm. And now Casey Licktag, another Western States champion. She was an Olympic trials qualifier. Look at Camille Heron. She's ran the trials. Um, this one, I look at it, it seems like to compete at the highest level, it's like that those runners are um, like have like trials cuts or like mm-hmm. have raw speed. Do you think a runner that maybe doesn't have that raw speed could still compete at that level? Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess it kind of, well, it depends, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but we're seeing an evolution, right? We're seeing we're, what you've noticed is absolutely true. Um, trail and ultra running is getting way more competitive and we're seeing a lot more people with uh track and road marathon speed right thriving in this sport and the reason being is because they've got huge engines yeah they've got they've got big vo2 max they've got high lactate thresholds you put them in a physio physiology lab and, if, and i test them like they're gonna have really strong numbers and like, okay, it makes sense. They've got really big engines. They're going to be fast on the road and that's going to apply really well to the trails as long as they train specifically for those events, which obviously they're, they're doing. Um, so, so yes, in that sense, I think that, um, the bigger engine you have, the more of an advantage that you have over the competition, However, it's not quite as pronounced in ultra and trail as it is in shorter events. Like for marathon, even let's take it down to 5K, 10K on the track. It's imperative. You've got to have the physiology. You've got to have a huge VO2 max um, and or and or um, be very economical, high, you know, great running economy to compete at that level. Well, once we get into ultra trail and the distance goes longer and longer and longer. So, you know, 200 last man standing, Mm -hmm. those type of events, it starts to matter less. Okay, That's because there's so many more variables. Um, There's so many more things to account for. Mental um, resilience is is different, you know, in those type of events. How well can you handle sleep deprivation? How, How can your gut handle the stresses of eating? all day long. Um, environmental physiology. Can you respond well to altitude, to heat, uh, to cold? Um, there's so, uh, you know, the skill required to run on technical single track, the, the, the conditioning required for you to be able to handle the eccentric loading of sustained downhill running. All those things are becoming more of a, 
variable as the distance goes longer. Right. And um, that you, you don't have as many variables in the, in the shorter distances. So it, it, it does matter like two people on the starting line of Western States and everything is equal. Mm-hmm. But one person has a faster marathon time and everything else is equal in terms of technicality and handling nutrition and mental resilience, which obviously is kind of a, a crazy scenario. That's not very likely that all those things <laughs> would be the same, but if all things were equal, right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the person that has a bigger engine is going to win. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And that's why we train the way we do. That's why we, yeah. we prioritize fitness because uh-huh. fitness, the more fit you can be on the starting line, the better your experience is going to be and the better you're going to be able to adapt and overcome setbacks um, <clears throat> and the less suffering you have to endure. For sure. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that you said as as the distance increases, the, the less it matters, which I think you're 100% right because I remember going to the Ohio Backyard Ultra or and then also following the results from the Ohio Backyard Ultra and like – Jennifer Russo, she's 53 and she's mm-hmm. running 225 miles, finishing second overall or even winning that thing. And yeah. uh, I don't know how fast, she, maybe she's an absolute hammer on the road. I don't know. But um, just like, at least with age, um, it's yeah. impressive. Yeah. And what yeah. I mean, think? look, look yes, at like, like uh, you know, look at like Harvey Lewis, yeah. you know, with last man standing. I don't, I don't know what his marathon time is, but I know it's not fast enough to qualify for the Olympics. Yeah, I think you know he's like older a too. A two forty something, which is phenomenal. He's got speed, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not. He's not um. Two ten guy. Walmsley. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, speaking of age, um, and I was just talking about Russo being uh, fifty three, but I I don't know if you saw Camille Heron. She's she's forty and she's broke mm-hmm. the world record. At what age do you think um, ultra runners? or at their prime? Oh yeah. Great question. Um, you know, I think that, um, kind of what we were just talking about, right? Like all the variables can really prolong that into a later age. Um, so that we see like peak fitness happening later on for people as, as the distances get longer. Um, you see a lot of successful people just look at, um, what was that race? Golden ticket race. Was that Bandera? Uh, no, Black the one in Arizona. Black Canyon. Black Canyon. Thank you. Don't blink there. You know that was that was top two at, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, in, on the male category it was you know very seasoned, older athletes. Right. Yeah. So um, even at a, a shorter distance, like a hundred k, but. Um, And I think because of, I think, you know, you can explain that with experience, like, you know, especially in black Canyon, those two guys were were local guys running in the heat, um, experienced runners ran smart. Um, and I think that that accounts for a lot of peaking later for ultra ultra distances is having the wisdom and all the accumulated experience, um, not just physiologically, but psychologically mm-hmm. to be able to overcome a lot of problems, problem solve better. You know, I've got vast amount of more years to, to learn how to problem solve on the go and, and have the, the confidence and resilience to be able to, <clears throat> to get through, you know, all the things that you face when you're out there on multi-day events. 
Right. So I don't know that there's a, a number. Um, right. And I would just be simply opining about it anyways. So I, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that as the distance gets older, it seems that we can perform at the highest level, um, you know, much later than we can right. at the shorter distances where physiology is the main factor in determining our performance. Okay. Gotcha. Well, wait, so can you explain that a little bit? So at least for, for me or maybe some other viewers, it, it's confusing that like at 200 miles, someone that's older would be able to just like keep up better than they would in like a 50 K. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, as we age, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's after maybe after age 40, mm-hmm. our, our VO2 max starts to decline, um, you know, per decade by a certain percentage. Yeah. Um, we lose our capacity to consume and utilize oxygen as well as we can when we're younger. Muscles are, you know, not as strong as they were um, when we were younger. However, um, there's also just all the adaptations that take place aerobically, mm-hmm. um, heart, lungs, um, and even all the like non-glamour muscles, the, 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 the muscles and tendons that are, you know, that we rely on so much as runners, um, that you don't see in the mirror <laughs> that are adapting mm-hmm. through training year over year, over year, over year. For sure. And so while we can't run, you know, as fast as we could in, let's just say that, you know, we have consistent training our whole life. Um, we can't run, you know, I can't run a 5k as fast as I could whenever I was in my prime at 18, 19 years old. Um, and when I'm 50, I damn sure won't be able to run a sub 16 minute 5k (laughs) at that point. Um, just because of the aging process. We see that as it gets longer, as the event gets longer, that that decline, that digression Mm -hmm. isn't as pronounced and it doesn't impact us as, as much. And the things that we do gain in that time frame, say from the time that we're 30 years old to 50 years old, right. what we do gain in the mental resilience, the, the, the psychology category, um, in the experience factor, um, you know, better pacing strategies, better nutrition strategies, all those things seem to uh, make a bigger difference than the, what we lose in terms of fitness. Gotcha. So yeah, maybe Harvey Lewis isn't as fit Maybe he is. I don't, I don't know. I can't right. speak to his training history because I don't know it. <laughs> right. uh, maybe he, maybe he can't run a 5k today as fast as he could run a 5k when he was younger. Right. And I say that without knowing anything about him as a younger runner. Um, but I guarantee you that he couldn't perform right. You know, in this last man standing, like he just recently did when, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 a great answer. That definitely clarified clarified it up for me at least, and hopefully some of the viewers out there. I don't know if I'm any clearer in my own response, but oh, no, <laughs> maybe I'm even maybe I'm even more confused now. So, oh, no. <laughs> uh, this is making 
this is making a lot of sense for sure. And moving on to the another question is um training location. How how important is it to be how is how important is training location on performance? Yeah, so we know it can help, right? Yeah. Um, coming back to specificity, it makes a big difference. Um, you know, if you're if you're training for a race in the desert, then it's it's ideal to live in the desert. If you're training for a race at altitude, then it's ideal to live in a place where you can train and you know train high. Um, so it's certainly an advantage, and it's certainly ideal to be able to live in an environment, but it's also not necessary. Um, one of the things that my coach and mentors, you know, drilled in me, um, is just that uh, fitness matters most. In fact, my, my coach, Jason Coop is also the coach of, of Casey, uh, And so, you know, he uses the example all the time about how she lives in Nebraska and, you know, doesn't have mountains to train in, but she's won Western States. And that's because they prioritize uh, just building the cardiovascular engine, getting wow. as fit as possible. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to that time and training of specificity, um, you know, getting out to training camps, getting out into the environment of your race, if that's the mountains, you know, getting, taking a, a two to three day training camp and making sure that you get uh, a dose of the, the stressors to um, get the necessary adaptations so that you're prepared for the event. And what we, what we know is that it really doesn't require a ton. Like if we think about the eccentric loading of downhill running, that's a pretty important adaptation. If you're going to run Western States where it's a net downhill, you know, a lot of downhill running in that race. So, but it doesn't mean that you need to live in a place where you get that year round. You can go for, you know, one weekend, Mm-hmm. ideally two or three weekends in the training process. Right. You know, in that race specificity phase that we discussed earlier, Yeah. get out there and run in the mountains for two to three days mm-hmm. and get the adaptations that you need. So a little bit, a little dose goes a long ways. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of switching um, from the beginning, I asked you what your best training advice you ever gotten What's some of the worst training advice or maybe not advice that you've gotten, but you think that people, that people follow, that's not necessarily like, like, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that, but a lot yeah. of or something that you personally have gotten that you didn't think that was good. And after you learned some stuff, I think, you know, the biggest one right now is like just chasing the marginal gains with, um, diet manipulation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole, and it's kind of controversial, but, you know, people are looking to gain, you know, let's just say a two to 3% in performance improvement by becoming very fat optimized mm-hmm. and they adapt their diet to cut out an entire macronutrient carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what's not being accounted for is the 20 to 30% of performance that they're leaving on the table by not being able to train in a way that's conducive to developing their cardiovascular engine. Now, of course, this is just my opinion. Um, there's, you know, there's people out there that are, that are training this way, um, you know, on low carb diets Mm -hmm. and frankly, they're anomalies. Mm -hmm. They don't represent the majority of people. And I think it's bad advice to say that what's working for them works for the masses. 
because all the research we have shows that it's not necessarily um, uh, beneficial that there's not that there's not that much performance opportunity there to gain by manipulating your diet that way. And it's very important to recognize that a lot of these, these elites that are doing this at a high level, you know, some of the highest level athletes that, that have adopted this way of eating and chasing fat optimization. Um, frankly, the, the, one of the reasons why they're getting so fit is because they're running a bunch. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how they're going to eat. <laughs> right. So, um, I think it's just a dangerous, dangerous advice and really bad training advice. And we see it all the time on like Facebook where someone chimes into a Facebook group and someone's asking for advice and they're like, Oh, you just need to cut out carbohydrates and that'll solve all your problems. Mm-hmm. And like, no, that's, that's not going to solve any problems. As in fact, right. it's going to create a bunch of problems for you. And so we need to leave diet recommendations to the experts, the, the dietitians. Uh, the sports nutritionists, we need to leave training advice to, to the people that <laughs> um, can look at things collectively and from a research and literature perspective. And we have to be careful whenever we're giving what I call what we call an N of one mm-hmm. example of like, okay, this works for me. So therefore it'll work for you. Gotcha. Absolutely. Yeah. Great answer. And what do you think um, the best trait an ultra runner can have? If you had to give pick one, one oh man, um, if it's just one, I would say purpose. Okay, is that a trait? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> being we'll purposeful. Yeah, being purposeful. I think that you know, um, understanding why, like, why are we getting out there and doing this? Obviously, that's going to make a big difference on race day because it's going to help you be more resilient and, and help you problem solve when you know shits hit the fan, but. I think that is also is really important to dial that in like way early in the training process because it's going to help you get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. It's going to help you get through a lot of the training runs. Um, it's going to help you, you know, even help you communicate with like family and loved ones or, you know, bosses or whoever is invested in, you know, your time to be able to communicate why you do this crazy thing, right. <laughs> why you go out there and put yourself through this. Like, this is why I do this. Like for me, I just, I seek to challenge myself and then grow from it. That's simple. Yeah. That's my purpose. I want to challenge myself and I want to grow from it. And that's what I'm after. And when I know that, like, it's easy for me then when I get, you know, deep into a race or a training run to be like, that's why I'm here. Like I put myself in this position to challenge myself. I'm not going to grow unless I persevere. Absolutely. So being able to come back to that purpose is, 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 going to help us be more resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's just a good application, you know, to be purposeful in everything that we do, if we want to be successful. Absolutely. And one of the, fi- the last question I got for you here is, uh, what do you think makes a good running coach? Oh man. You know, I think that, um, ultimately it comes back to just caring. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you know, I can say there's a whole lot of things that make a great running coach, uh, education, understanding the sciences, um, being able to apply the sciences to a training program, architect, a good blueprint, a good plan. But really it comes back to caring, caring and being able to navigate the relationship to pull the best out of an athlete. And so you can have a coach that has all the X's and O's, 
and knows all the right answers, but if they don't care about the athlete and they're not really invested in that individual, they're not going to be able to pull out their true potential. Gotcha. And then on the flip side, I guess we can reverse that, right? Like you can have a coach that really cares and is a great cheerleader, but right. if they don't know the X's and O's and, and understand how to de- develop people f- from a physiological perspective, um, you know, that can be troublesome too. But, but really, I think the most important thing is that the coach cares mm-hmm. and, and is invested in the relationship. And that's why, you know, I, I, I do my best to make sure you guys, you know, you can text me 24 seven, right? Like there's no time that you can't reach me or or anything else like that. And I think that, you know, the more that we communicate and have an open line of communication and um, the more authenticity there is there between the both of us, a matter of like you telling me, Hey, I feel terrible. I need some rest and recovery. Like that's, you know, um, great feedback for me and for me to be able to be like, Hey, um, I need you to do more of this or less of that. You know, that the two way street of just authenticity and transparency goes a long way. Absolutely. And I know with, um, my experience, I'll say like before I had a coach, I was definitely getting pretty burnt out. I was, um, I was kind of just running myself in the ground and putting the shoes on. Wasn't, it was kind of like, oh man, I got to throw the shoes on because I had just thrown out these mile markers that I was going for. And ever since I started working with Cliff, definitely started to enjoy, enjoy the sport a lot more and um, definitely feel better. I'm not um, completely Thanks, trapped man. all the time. That I, like <laughs> I before. Thanks, man. I appreciate oh, yeah. that. It's, hey, it's easy. Yeah, go ahead. It's easy when you, when you have, especially when you're younger and you have a big engine and you can lay it all out there and you're tough, it's easy to run yourself into the ground because you can do it. Like yeah. physically, you're able to run yourself into the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, it, you know, sometimes as a coach, I'm, there's a lot of people that I have to push. Like, hey, you got you got to have to get out there when you're hurting. You're going to yeah. have to, uh, you know, that's fine that your legs are sore. I need to push through it. And there's people like yourself that I have to put a leash on and be like, hey, we got to think about the bigger picture here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to, you know, we got to rest and recover more. So, um, yeah, so no, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and it's really good feedback. Yeah, where, where can people find you at? Yeah, so uh, Instagram, um, Coach Cliff Pittman is a handle there. And I uh, love to interact with people on there. I'm on Facebook. Um, I got a newsletter that goes out just about every week. Um, usually send it out on Monday or Tuesday. So you can subscribe to that. You can find that on my Instagram bio. Um, and so I'd love to, to connect with anybody in, in any of those, those platforms and formats. And then uh, my website as well. Website's also on Instagram. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Cliff, you got any, you got any closing words for us? Oh, everybody just keep, just keep, uh, you know, keep pushing, keep grinding, just stay, you know, get in tune with your purpose under, you know, I encourage everybody to write a mission statement, like mm-hmm. write it out on paper while you run, you know, I, I run to, to seek challenge and growth and model resiliency for others. Mm-hmm. And, um, the more that you can get clear on that, the better your running experience is going to be. And, um, yeah, that's all, that's all I got. Just keep up the good work. Absolutely. All right. That is episode 14. Ask a coach, Cliff Pittman. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, man.